I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm Brett Baer, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, September 15th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. President Biden's son is indicted on federal gun charges. Now, you know, you have this question about whether that plea deal will happen. These are serious felony charges. Will he be treated that way like any other defendant is? Or because the DOJ has taken a bit of a black eye on this thing, the plea deal fell apart. People thought it was kind of sketchy the way it was coming together. Will they now say like, oh, no, I think we got to take this thing to trial. We speak with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. I'm Chris Foster. We're four months from the first 2024 presidential primary votes being cast, first in Iowa, then New Hampshire, with President Biden on the Democrats' ballot or not. The Democrat leadership is completely screwing it up. If they try to do a primary, then we're going to have to go ahead of them. I think there's a consensus in the state that that would have to happen. It's per our law. We can't go second. We talked to New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. And I'm Rabbi Sam Bregman. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. In a year of legal first for presidents, here's another one. The son of a sitting president now charged with federal gun offenses. A grand jury in Delaware returned an indictment against Hunter Biden on three counts, all connected to making false statements about drug use during a firearm purchase. Two of those three counts carry a maximum 10-year prison sentence. A third count is punishable by up to five years. The president's son has acknowledged struggling with crack cocaine addiction in October of 2018, the same time federal prosecutors say Hunter Biden purchased a Colt Cobra revolver. This historic indictment comes as part of a broader investigation led by special counsel David Weiss in the foreign income and potential tax offenses by Hunter Biden. They said that it would come before the 29th. So I think some of us thought maybe a little bit later in the month. Shannon Bream is the anchor of Fox News Sunday. I was coming into the office from another appointment and all of a sudden my phone's blowing up. He's been indicted. And I thought, well, yeah, we knew that was coming, but maybe a little bit earlier than we thought. So now this kind of resets that table for this conversation about will there be another pass and another attempt at a plea deal? Or are we going to have the son of the sitting president in the middle of a trial in the middle of election season when the former president, who is probably going to be the GOP nominee, is himself sitting in courtrooms all year? (laughs) It's super weird. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about these charges. So it's three felonies, but they are sort of all connected to the same instance, right? In which Mm -hmm. Hunter Biden on a form, when you purchase a a handgun, you have to sort of answer some questions on a federal form. One of them is whether or not you are abusing illegal substances. And, And he checked he was not. And we know that that is not true based on his own admissions in, in writings and interviews and things like that, where during this time period, um, Hunter Biden has talked about his struggles of crack cocaine use. And so lying on that form is, is a crime, not alerting, I guess, the clerk as you're purchasing the weapon is a crime and then continuing to possess that weapon, knowing that you lied on the form is a crime. So those are the three charges. Yeah, I mean, that's the allegation. Um, If convicted on everything and the charges maxed out, it would be 25 years max he'd face in jail. I think almost nobody thinks that is going to happen or anything near that. But does this, you know, Andy McCarthy is one of those who's been out there saying there never should have been a plea deal because there wasn't an indictment to plea down from. Mm -hmm. So 
now, you know, you have this question about whether that plea deal will happen. These are serious felony charges. Will he be treated that way like any other defendant is? Or because the DOJ has taken a bit of a black eye on this thing, the plea deal fell apart. People thought it was kind of sketchy the way it was coming together. Will they now say like, oh, no, I think we got to take this thing to trial because people are watching. They expect it. Uh, But really what we all want is for any defendant to be treated like any other defendant. So if you would be in the plea deal process or conversation at this point with any defendant, why not with Hunter Biden? Maybe. But but the plea deal wasn't necessarily for these charges, right? That plea right. deal was about the misdemeanor tax offenses, which right. we now understand through court filings. Are pro- if there is an indictment, is not going to come out of Delaware. It's going to have to come out mm-hmm. of, I guess, California, where, where Hunter Biden was living, or out of D.C., because I or guess it's DC, the IRS. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is just the so gun stuff. That, which... so, so the gun stuff was sort of like, we'll do a deferred adjudication, which I my understanding, and, and you would know this better than me, is that's not that uncommon for an offense that is sort of a first offense and where the gun is not used in like the commission of another crime. Is that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to consider there. Right. If this has not been like Hunter took it and went and held up a bank, I mean, that's a totally different Mm -hmm. situation than, you know, lying on a form. But as Judge Noriega did note during the hearing they had where that plea deal fell apart, she was saying, listen, I've had other people come through this courtroom who were struggling with addiction and they lied on the form. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a felony charge. That is something mm-hmm. that actually happens. It wouldn't be like Hunter Biden's the first person in history who lied about drug use and got charged with a felony. I mean, it does happen. But is it usually sort of settled in that kind of deferred manner? In other words, as long as you stay out of trouble for a pre-prescribed amount of time, it's kind of forgiven without yeah, any you sort can of do that prosecution? With a, yeah, with a first-time offender, people will argue that those charges don't always come. But we know that there are other cases out there. Um, We had a former, you know, Baltimore police uh, official who was on our air who talked about having very similar charges. He didn't get the same deference and he went to jail. But what his argument was is that everybody should be treated the same way. If you've got similar charges, we want people to see similar things that didn't happen on the tax charges for Hunter. But it is fair to say that on some of these, um, you know, gun charges, people, you know, it's not an automatic jail term by any means. Often there are these diversionary things. And his team has continued to argue that these charges are barred by the agreement that the prosecutors made with him. So they're going to stick to that. And you don't blame them. I mean, they're defending him. But the judge never accepted it. What's it matter if the judge didn't accept it? Yeah, she says that, you know, his people are going to argue there was a deal. They weren't going to charge him. So nothing has changed in the interim. So that deal is still in place. And, um, yeah, the judge is not she was not willing to sign off on it. So we would expect now to see they have to assign it to a judge. It has to be a first hearing kind of played out that way. Yeah, I mean, every case and every judge can handle things differently. But if it goes like the average case does, then Mm -hmm. this could start that clock again for them having a conversation Mm -hmm. about a plea deal because now he's got an official indictment. Otherwise, it's just going to proceed, you know, like any other case would. And we'll see whether or not they end up bringing charges on those tax offenses as well. Or Farah or anything else. Yeah. And remember when the plea deal looked like it maybe would hold together It was during those conversations that the DOJ revealed there was an ongoing investigation. So they're Mm -hmm. in there making sort of a deal over the tax misdemeanor stuff and the gun thing, the diversion thing. But that led a lot of us to just wonder, okay, what is the rest of it? And it sounded like the judge, like, let the defense know, like, you know, this doesn't necessarily clear you of everything else. Right. Like, oh, it doesn't. (laughs) Right. Because they're like, no, the deal is that we think he gets cleared of all future investigations and those kinds of things, too. There was clearly a, a disagreement 
between the parties on that. But but the DOJ has made clear for a long time now that this is not a closed case. The last question I would ask about this is this was filed in Wilmington. This was filed in Delaware, which is where the special counsel is the U.S. attorney for. Mm -hmm. He did not need special counsel status to bring these charges. He may have needed it to bring charges on the tax stuff because they can't necessarily be filed in Delaware. But this is a case he could have brought a while ago. Yeah. And so critics were asking why he didn't. You know, why why didn't this come together? Why was this part of a diversionary agreement? And there will be people who will argue that these two were on the same side, the DOJ and Hunter Biden's attorneys, because it was probably beneficial to all the parties to get this thing settled, get it done, do it quietly, get it out of the way. Others will say, no, I mean, the DOJ is clearly an adversarial party to Hunter Biden's attorneys. They're on two sides of this thing. And um, it was a fairly hammered out agreement. The judge clearly had some concerns with it, though. And so this is far from over, as you said at the beginning of this conversation. It could mean that uh, the president's son and the former president are, uh-huh. are on trial at the same time in the middle of an election year. And well, we've never covered a, a campaign quite like this, but we'll, uh, no. we'll continue to cover it, Shannon. <laughs> but here um, we go. And by the way, that could all be happening as the current president is facing an impeachment. Let's talk a little bit about that, because that was another big development this week. Uh, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, launching an impeachment inquiry, a sort of pre-step to a mm-hmm. formal uh, impeachment uh, process, notably did so, and this has been raised by a lot of folks, without a vote of the full House, which was something he and other Republicans were very critical uh, of Speaker Pelosi when she moved mm-hmm. forward on impeachment inquiries against former President Trump. One of the conclusions that is being drawn from that, Shannon, is that it didn't come to a vote because it may not have passed. Mm-hmm. Is that a conclusion that, that you have drawn? I think that's a good question to ask uh, if those votes are there, because you do have Republicans out publicly saying in recent weeks, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think this is the right way to go. I don't think this is a good move. But um, I think that the speaker is in a tough place in a lot of respects. You and I know we cover the minutiae of this, the deal that was made for him to become speaker on 15 ballots um, and the people who were really holding him to those things on spending and all these other things. So we'll see. But he's got this internal conflict, just like Democrats. They've got plenty of their own internal conflicts about Biden. Is he the best candidate? The polls tell us people are not thrilled. He's got the hunter problem. He's got the economy problem. But Republicans have got this issue where we are now looking down, you know, the home stretch of trying to get some of these spending bills done. No way. Any of us believe they all get done by September 30th. He's also got this pressure. The speaker does on the right on this impeachment issue. So there's a lot for the House to unpack. And, you know, impeachments, and we've had some experience covering them in, in recent mm-hmm. years, are political exercises, not legal exercises, right? That's yeah, an important exactly. distinction as we kind of look at, you know, when, when people say, well, the evidence isn't there, and there's not like a standard burden of proof in an impeachment, right? Yeah, like a if, high if, crime if and this... misdemeanor is largely defined by what the House of Representatives says is a high crime or misdemeanor. Yeah, and they don't agree. Yes, we've seen from the last two impeachments, they don't agree on that. But this is not a legal situation where you're going to drag people in front of a judge and you're going to be swearing people in and you're going to be, you know, asking for rulings on motions of evidentiary questions. Like, we're well, just not anywhere near that. That's not how but this works. If you do get a subpoena mm-hmm. and you challenge it, how does a judge determine whether or not you have to comply with a congressional subpoena in the context of an impeachment inquiry? Well, think about all of the rulings we've had lately on contempt. 
You know, mm. you think back um, to when he was the attorney general. Eric Holder was the first attorney general to face congressional contempt. Mm-hmm. Um, in more recent years, I mean, Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro, I believe, is the other. I mean, they're yeah, in serious convicted. legal trouble because if, you know, a congressional committee it decides to take this to court and now you actually do have an actual judge getting involved, it can be a serious issue. And, and the Justice Department the has shown for, that they will prosecute you. Yeah, you can go to court for enforcement of something that starts out as, you know, in the legislative body, these congressional subpoenas, sure. And I guess that's the question is if there were any sort of attempt to to not comply under this impeachment inquiry of of President Biden and the Justice Department has recently prosecuted people for not complying with subpoenas in previous investigations, does that set a precedent now for how the Justice Department could handle these cases? I mean, the Republicans are certainly going to argue that. The thing yeah. is, too, these things take time and appeals take time. I mean, all of this can be yeah. playing out through the election season before you get anywhere close to an impeachment. Um, and you got to wonder, is the, is the House really going to expend that amount of political energy and capital knowing it goes nowhere in the Senate? They might. Mm. I mean, yeah. you know, political campaign years make people do all kinds of things. It can and, also and, move you know, kind of quickly, will... too, right? I mean, right. like, they could... And the House will say, I mean, some of these House members are going to be like, listen, I don't care who the president is. I think something shady is going on here. Let us mm-hmm. see the bank records. Work with us, White House. If you do that, we don't have to subpoena you. And we'll just see where the chips fall. But there are others who think, listen, once you turn on the impeachment inquiry framework, it only ends in one place. So we'll see. Shannon, thank you so much for the chat, as always. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks, Jared. This is Rabbi Sam Bregman with your Fox News commentary coming up. The Iowa caucuses are four months from today. The New Hampshire primary sometime soon after that. Although how much the Democrats primary there will count is still up in the air. There's a dispute over the calendar. For the Republicans, former President Trump leads the polls in both states like he does everywhere else. Another Republican candidate for president, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, tells Fox Business, let's see what happens when people actually vote. New Hampshire is where we're staking a lot of our hopes in South Carolina. But remember, when each one of those primaries or caucuses happen, it changes the race completely when people actually vote, as opposed to all the polling that we see. Polling is just hot air. Voting is when you go in and you make your voice heard. That's what we're counting on in uh, New Hampshire in late January. And um, I'll come right on Varney and company after I win the New Hampshire primary. We can talk about it then. Current New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu agrees. Let people vote before we start crowning winners. It's only September, right? So there's no race is called by September. He announced over the summer he is not running for re-election or for president. So my point there is that things can change. What's going to happen is the voters are really going to coalesce, I, I mean, coalesce around one or two candidates to kind of that aren't Trump, alternatives to Trump. And then most importantly, the other candidates are going to get out of the race. Yeah. And when it's one on one, Trump loses. Right. He he's not going to be able to hold 50 percent vote if it were him and somebody else. There's just too many Republicans that are looking for somebody else. Uh, it's, it's classic game theory. They all have the same interests, but they also have an internal interest that could work against the system. So if they have the discipline to get out, it's going to be Trump and somebody else. They coalesce around one other. Uh, If you do that by Super Tuesday, the sky's the limit for that other candidate. Yeah, I mean, gaming it out in your head. and You don't know exactly what's going to happen in the next debate, for example, which is September 27th. So far, there's six people that are expected to be on stage. In your mind, do you see that being a winnowing down point where one or two people are like, look, 
even especially the people that don't make the stage. Oh, sure. Look, there were 13 people in the race six weeks ago. Eight of them got onto the first stage. As you said, probably six get onto the next stage. So, I mean, we're clearly winnowing down the field, and it's, it's barely, uh, and that'll happen before we're in October. So if you can get to five or six candidates, maybe one or two, if you can get one or two out of the race by the time December comes, you have four or five candidates going into Iowa, three or four going into New Hampshire. Well, now after New Hampshire, you can say, okay, here's the candidate to really challenge Donald Trump. And if people kind of play the patient game, let the voters have a say, let the candidates earn what they can on the ground with retail politics, earn what they can nationally with the debates. Those are very important parts of the process. Let that happen. There's no reason this can't come out for a huge win for the Republican Party. And again, it comes down to all those, the other six, seven candidates. If those six candidates can have the discipline to say, it's not working, there's no more path, I'm getting out right now. When they have the discipline to get out and make it a one-on-one race, that's how Trump loses. So, look, I don't mean to say this whole race comes down to the decisions of six individuals, but those six candidates really hold the ultimate decision of whether Trump is the nominee or not. If they stay in too long, Trump's going to be the nominee and we're all going to lose. If they have the discipline to get out, which they say they do, but it's a different story whether they really will or not, um, there's a huge opportunity for the Republican Party to not just get a winning candidate on the presidential side, but have a kind of championed brand message, galvanizing opportunity for independents and suburban moms and young voters who we've lost in droves. We need them back to win. And that's the huge opportunity that I think will get capitalized on come January, February, and March of next year. Well, what could really complicate that is, let's say somebody wins Iowa, somebody else wins New Hampshire, and then things are kind of... Uh, and then, or, or finish the second, finish third, and then, it, but but it, and it's murky that nobody's nobody's risen to the top. That you get three people, for example, who are all eh, about as successful uh, when you hit Super Tuesday. Well, that's okay. You'll still have South Carolina, Florida, Nevada, some of those other early states, and then uh, I'm not sure where Florida is. I think they're pretty early. And then, as long as that you know you, you keep winning right down, it really comes down to having a one-on-one race before Super Tuesday. And I think by then it won't just be Chris Sununu or one person here saying, "Hey, you should get out." You're going to have a chorus of Republican leadership voices, a chorus of voices from the Republican donor base, uh, the money, if you will, that, that supports these candidates saying, hey, we tried. It's not working for the sake of the party, for the sake of the country. You've got to get out of the race. There's a discipline and a responsibility to that. So we, well, it's not that it has to be decided one-on-one right after New Hampshire. It could be. Um, but shortly thereafter, you know, as long as it's before Super Tuesday where you start to get to the winner-take-all states where all the delegates go to the winner, I think that's, that's what you have to capitalize. Yeah. The New Hampshire primary is, I don't know, give or take 18 weeks, something like that. Am I about right? Um, certainly less than five months. Um, what's the latest with your primary calendar? Um, I know that the plan is to buck the Democratic National Committee. Well, the Democratic National Committee was supposed to make a decision this week, and they said, uh, we're going to delay it one more month. They keep stalling. Into, I mean, Joe Biden and the Democrat National Committee are becoming an absolute joke. Look, we are going first. It does, I don't, we don't care. We're not beholden to anything that they say. We're going first with our primary process. The Republican leadership in Iowa is spot on. They're doing a great job. They know exactly what their role is in managing a caucus and doing a good job with the caucus. The Democrat leadership is completely screwing it up. If they try to do a primary then we're going to have to go ahead of them. I think there's a consensus in the state that that would have to happen. It's per our law. We can't go second. And this is all Joe Biden's fault because he wanted to, again, personally gift, which is kind of his M.O. with everything he does in government, use his influence to personally gift and give something to those that supported him, specifically in South Carolina, 
um, to try to make them the first. But it's it's we're going first. I mean, that's really <laughs> all there is to it. And in doing that and saying that, he's created this domino effect of chaos. I mean, real chaos within the uh, primary process for the Democrat Party. But here in New Hampshire, both the Democrat and Republicans will go first. Uh, hopefully, it'll be sometime in in you know late January, something like that. But if the Democrats play games. We don't play games in New Hampshire. We're just going to follow our law and put ours ahead of theirs. Yeah. We talk a lot, of course, about New Hampshire every four years since it is the first. Does New Hampshire, t- I haven't looked back, does New, Ham- New Hampshire tend to pick winners? I and mean, we know it can at least change the conversation, change the momentum, like you said. Yes. So we, got, we have a great history of picking pr- the president. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Biden was one of the anomalies there because Biden was just such a bad retail politician. He didn't like to talk to people. He didn't like to engage with the press or anything. And again, he cut his political deals in South Carolina. And the Democrat Party tends to be the party where influencers push the vote for everybody. But we don't do that on the Republican side. The voters decide. We don't insist that the voters just follow our lead. Our voters are smart. They're engaged. They're very intelligent. They ask the tough questions. And they're going to put all the candidates through their paces. And they're going to make their own decisions, as they should. Uh, Democrats tend to be just kind of lemmings that follow uh, the leader. It's exactly what happened in South Carolina. So Joe Biden kind of gave up on New Hampshire, uh, went to South Carolina, and that's what gave him a lot of momentum. To his credit, I mean, it's you know that that's he knew how to play the Democrat game. There's no games on the Republican side. It's just earning the votes uh, on our side. Um, I don't know if you know him at all or how well you know Mitt Romney. He's not running again for the Senate. He you know he's someone who's talked like you um, a lot about bipartisanship. He was. Um, he was a Republican governor in a purple-blue state, more blue than purple probably, uh, in Massachusetts. Now, it seems like a million years ago that he was the Republican presidential nominee. He was the most recent guy before Trump. Um, and you have, no, you have no problem like him working with a lot of Democrats. Is the atmosphere, do you think, keeping people who might be good candidates away from seeking higher office? Romney also you know, is talking about his age as a factor, too. But um, do you think that there are people who are like, yeah, I don't want to be part of this? There's no doubt about that. First, I have a, a lot of respect for Mitt Romney. Don't agree with him on everything, um, but boy, there is a, a gentleman that just uh, votes and speaks his heart, and yet you can never fault anybody for that. Um, and I just have a, a, an immense amount of respect for him and what he's done for the country. Um, now, the real reason, I mean, if you want to get to the core of why this is, it isn't just that people decided to get angry and more polarized. Um, it, a, a lot, most of it, I think, stems from gerrymandering, uh, really bad management of social media, and really bad campaign finance laws. Um, gerrymandering is a really hard thing to undo, right? But we used to have 150 congressional seats in this country that were fairly back and forth, right? They were very winnable by either party if you had a good enough candidate. But through gerrymandering, you've now created only about 50 seats. So many of them are locked up either Republican or Democrat, which means if you're a Democrat in a Democrat district, you're going to go way left now because you're more afraid of being primaried than facing a general election opponent. Same with the, with the, with the Republicans. So it creates, gerrymandering creates this massive polarization throughout the country. I'm the only governor in the country that did not sign a redistricting bill because even my fellow Republicans were trying to make it so we had one solid Republican district, one solid Democrat district. I said, look, I'm a Republican. I'm not giving a Democrat a job for life. Like, that's no. I think we can, a good candidates can always win any seat. And so you want to keep them in, in New Hampshire's a very purple state, and we're very open-minded, candidate quality matters, we should never be locking anything up. So that's a real problem. I think campaign finance has created a lot of the polarization here because these crazy laws with this dark money pack, basically you're going to get extremists to rock the boat, stall the process. We're seeing that right now in Washington, right? Their demands for the impeachment and all that. The, the only reason they're doing that is to raise money. That's a problem. 
I'm not saying there's not validity behind the impeachment, by the way. There very well may be. But believe me, the number one priority there is to raise money. So that in itself is a problem. But all of this plays into, unfortunately, good people sitting it out. Now, here's, here's the good news. I'm sorry for the long answer, but here's the good news. I'm an engineer. I, I understand uh, mathematics and everything in life works in cycles. I think we're in a, a tough cycle right now. I think there will be some changes to the system as well as some pushback where folks start saying, look, I just want people that get stuff done. I believe in that. And I think there, there will be a, a swinging tide to, uh, to folks that kind of demand accountability. Um, so that's kind of the reason that as much as, you know, we can talk about folks not wanting to get into the game, I think there'll be a, a, a cyclic change to that. And I think our institutions are so strong that they will allow that opportunity to come to fruition in the future. Governor Snoo, good to talk to you again. Uh, governor of the tax-free suburb of Boston, live free or die, uh, New Hampshire. Uh, governor Snoo, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks a lot. This was fun. Appreciate the time. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. A Norwegian man's hobby has turned up something quite extraordinary, 1,500-year-old jewelry. Earlier this year, Erland Bohr's doctor told him to get outside and stop sitting on the couch. So he bought a metal detector, and last month he started walking around one of Norway's southern islands with it. He found some scrap at first, then stumbled onto some treasure, nine pendants, three rings, and ten gold pearls that someone might have worn as showy jewelry around 500. AD. Under Norwegian law, objects from before 1537 and coins older than 1650 are considered state property and must be handed in, so Erland didn't get to keep it. But his find won't be kept behind closed doors. It's expected to become part of an exhibit at an archaeological museum about 200 miles southwest of Oslo. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Subscribe to this podcast at FoxNewsPodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Rabbi Sam Bregman. What's on your mind? For Jews around the world, this Friday night corresponds with the beginning of the annual high holiday season, beginning with the Jewish New Year of Rosh Hashanah, followed by Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, 10 days later. The messages of these holidays remain timeless ones for people of all faiths. These holidays are deeply affiliated with the idea of personal renewal and the ability for a person to chart a fresh course in life. In particular, this fresh course is in the area of making an accounting of our lives and asking ourselves, life is so ephemeral, what are we doing and accomplishing with our time here anyway? The Torah explains that since Rosh Hashanah corresponds to the sixth day of creation in the Bible, the day that God created Adam and Eve, it thus becomes an annual inflection point to contemplate the lives we've been living in public and private and to pivot as necessary. It's vitally important to understand that tomorrow is promised to no one. And no matter how good we may have it today, our lives can be turned over in an instant. 
none of us should take life for granted. And we have to make sure that we infuse each and every day with some form of goodness or form of giving or some expression of spirituality that will outlive our brief and fleeting time on this earth. With all my heart, I wish you a beautiful, happy, sweet new year. And I, with Jewish leaders around the world, wish that all of you should be sealed in the book of life. As we recite in the ancient Jewish High Holiday Prayer Book, may the previous year and its curses conclude and let the new year and its blessings begin. I'm Rabbi Sam Bregman. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.